<laughs> yeah, good morning at Rock Harbor. My name is John Link, and I oversee adult ministries here. And we had an amazing night last Sunday. As you can see, yes, that was me uh, riding a horse. I'm still recovering. I just got my voice back a couple days ago, and I'm still getting over those saddle sores that I had from the horse. But, hey, whatever it takes, uh, desperate times all for desperate measures. I mean, we took it home, so it was all worth it. But I do have one thing to say. What about Scott Nolan's shorts, though? Holy smokes. Wow, there's a couple yells. Hopefully that wasn't his wife. Didn't sound like it. But uh, all I got to say is Andrea Nolan is one lucky woman, right? And so, uh, but yeah, we had a blast. We can't tell you how much we appreciate all you guys who volunteer and serve here at Rock Harbor. So this week we are continuing in our sermon series through 2 Corinthians, uh, the title being um, of the whole uh, sermon series being Power and Weakness. And this comes from a verse in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. It says, My grace is sufficient, for my power is made perfect in weakness, and therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And we could see how Paul often uses this paradoxical line of thinking and themes to really try to convey these deep uh, approaches and thoughts that he's having as far as uh, what he's trying to, to tell us. And there's some things that could be said about the Apostle Paul. Whatever he did, uh, however he carried himself, uh, whatever God did through him, he was always uh, pointing it and directing it back to Jesus Christ, knowing that uh, underneath him, that's where he needs to find that dependence. And, and through him, he's able to do all these things. He says in, in Philippians 4, 12 and 13, it says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, of abundance and need. I can do all things through him, through Christ, who gives me strength. And, and this is a line of thinking that allowed Paul to endure these very difficult seasons. And it was, these difficult seasons were something that Paul was very accustomed to. We, we could see that time and time again uh, throughout the New Testament. And, and these difficult seasons, that's something that uh, oftentimes many of us have to go through, many of us have to endure. And it's kind of crazy. Things could be uh, going along very well in our lives. You know, the sunshine, and we live in Boise, right? You know, we're sipping iced tea on our deck. You know, there's not a cloud in the sky. And then all of a sudden, we just kind of get some difficult news. And depending on the severity and magnitude of that news, news that could really kind of send us for a tailspin. It might take us to a place where we get really discouraged, and, and that's the place that we actually see that Paul is at uh, today. He's, he's going along, and things are, are already bad, but then he gets this difficult news from the church of Corinth. And he's at a spot where he's just wondering, you know, you know I can't believe this is happening again. You know, I, I can't believe that many of us find us here in this room. I, I can't believe I'm going through this same difficult season uh, once again. Why can't things just go back to the way they were. And this is where the devil would actually have us to be sometimes. And, and we have to lean into truth. We have to lean into what God has to say for us. And this is where Paul is at when he's reading or when he's writing the book of 2 Corinthians. And so go ahead and open up your Bibles. We're going to jump in. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. Uh, the words are also on the screen. But it says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that I might, uh, so when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of all of you. For I wrote to you out of much affliction 
in anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. See, in these four short verses, Paul actually uses the word pain four times. He uh, uses the word suffer, uh, affliction, and anguish. And it wasn't that Paul was having a bad day. He was actually having a very bad season. And oftentimes when we go through difficult times and difficult trials, it's not really the magnitude of what we're experiencing, but sometimes it could be the length, right? When, when that, that trial, when that difficult time and season doesn't have an end in sight, and then that's what can be so uh, gut-wrenching. That, that's what could be so heartbreaking. And he was discouraged at this point, and he was discouraged by the church of Corinth because he had spent 18 months with this church, and it was an amazing church. God was doing some amazing things there. He, he had poured his heart and soul into this church, and there was this mutual affection and, and love for each other, and, and that's why it was so painful that all this was taking place. As we know from the book of 1 Corinthians that we just went through prior to this, uh, that uh, Paul was having to say some very corrective words to the church because they were at a very difficult place because the, the, Paul had taught them all of these things. They had gone through all these things, and uh, the church had been growing, but they were falling back into their same sinful patterns. They, they were proud. They were arrogant. They were selfish. They got drunk on communion wine. They, the sexual immorality that was a, a, a staple of the city of Corinth was um, coming back into the church. They were suing each other. All of these things that Paul had to say, well, this isn't what God had for you. This isn't how I taught you. And so Paul had to write the letter of 1 Corinthians to kind of convey to them that this is how you're supposed to live. And, and he also made what is called to and referred to here as a painful visit to them. You know, probably more of the same, just telling them, what are you guys doing? This isn't, this isn't what um, God has for us. And we also know scholars uh, say that there is a, a third letter written, and we don't have record of it, but probably in between 1 and 2 Corinthians, there is a third level letter written, and that was referred to as the painful letter. And so, but he's doing this out of love. He's saying, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. See, here's the thing. Paul's words were not only falling on deaf ears because the church of Corinth didn't want to hear what he was saying. Uh, There was also some false teachers that were rising up with the sole purpose of just discrediting Paul's ministry. And they were trying to just tear down his character. And here's the thing. It was, it was actually working. Paul was human. Just like all of us, he had emotions of rejection. And these emotions of rejection led him to a place of emotional turmoil. And we know this because Paul had endured so much. All the beatings, floggings, imprisonments, shipwrecks. Uh, man, the guy got bit by a snake, and then he pulled off that snake while I was biting him, threw it in the fire. Like, how ninja is that? That is just amazing. But this is what he's choosing to speak of. He's, going, he's gone through all these things from a physicality standpoint, and he's saying, right now, I am in emotional turmoil. You know, the age-old question is, what do we do? Where do we go? Uh, how do we deal when we're in these seasons of discouragement? You know, how are we supposed to get from point A 
to be. Oftentimes it's a, a situation or a season where a, a good night's sleep doesn't really fix things. Or, or it's a situation where, you know, this emotional pain is so bad. It's, it's just as bad as any physical pain that I've ever had, that I've ever experienced. And this, it might be a season where you've said, I've done everything. I've tried everything. I've even taken everything. And still I feel the same. And so the word isn't used here, but a clinical word would be called depression. Depression. As Christians, if you've been in the church, you've probably heard this statement or given this statement. Well, you, you just need to give it to the Lord, right? You need to give it to the Lord, and he'll take care of you. And, and that's, that in itself is, is good advice, but practically, what, what does that actually mean? Where are we supposed to go when the, the statement is used, give it to the Lord? Now, that could mean a lot of things. It could mean, you know, this, that. Uh, but uh, Paul is directing us towards a couple of things in which it means in this passage. So let's pick back up at verse 5. It says, Now, if anyone has caused pain... He has caused pain, it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for the sake and the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Oftentimes, uh, the reasoning behind uh, some of these painful and difficult circumstances that we go through might be uh, uh, something that's taken place or a chain of events that could bring us to this um, season of despondency, but oftentimes it has to do with a person. And Paul is talking about this very specific topic of forgiveness because he knows that this is the place that his heart needs to go to in order that he could be fully uh, open to everything that God is having for him because he was holding on to this topic about this specific person that had done him harm, that had done him wrong. And and what he was doing, he's basically saying, yeah, this is uh, uh, hard. This is difficult. Um, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to place my pride at the door and, and pardon this offense that has been leveraged against me. And again, he says, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we may not be outwitted by Satan. And oftentimes, that's where the devil likes to get a foothold, that that feeling of anger or retaliation or revenge or that bitterness of heart. And we have to understand that in every situation, in every point of con, uh, conflict or contention, there's, there's three people involved. It's, it's, it's a, not a three-way street. It's not a two-way street. It's a three-way street. It's you, this other person, and the Lord. And we continually need to ask and answer the question of God in this specific situation how is it that you're calling me to act? How is it that you're calling me to respond? How is it that my actions can be glorifying to you? And so that's great, John. What difference does it make, though, when it comes to my discouragement? Well, it makes all the difference because oftentimes when we hold on to these feelings of revenge and retaliation, um, it just kind of sees within us, and it doesn't open us up 
to the freedom that God has for us. And many of you here in this room are familiar with the parable of the unforgiven servant. If you've been at Reengage, we talk about this a lot because forgiveness needs to be just a staple of marriage, doesn't it? And so this is the uh, unabashed uh, plug for Reengage on Wednesday night. And so we say a lot of things, regardless of where your marriage is at, Reengage is marriage enrichment for all marriages. We meet every Wednesday night at 630. And we also say this. This is the, the second most important relationship that you will have, that God has given you, uh, your spouse is a gift from the Lord. And choosing to spend one to two hours on this relationship, that's a really good thing. And so, uh, but back to the unforgiven servant. Uh, we see Jesus telling this parable. It's a man, and he uh, owed someone a lot of money. We're not just talking a small amount. We're talking the modern-day equivalent of $6 billion. So essentially, an unpayable amount. There's nothing he could do to ever repay this great amount of money. But what happens is his master, who's requiring this of him, says, you have been forgiven of the entire amount. Goodness, that's amazing. You would think that this man's response would be one of just uh, unbelievable gratefulness. Like, I can't believe this has happened. A joyful expression of, look at what this person has done for me. But he does this instead. He finds a servant of his own who owes him, which is the equivalent of a couple months' wages. Chump change compared to $6 billion. And he demands and he threatens and he chokes his servant and says, pay, pay me the money you owe me. And we're looking at this man and we're just kind of indignant. We're we're, we're angered. We're we're, uh, just frustrated. Like, how could someone act like this when he or she has been forgiven of so, so much, but the reality of it is, we are that unforgiven servant, unforgiving servant. God has forgiven us of so, so much. He has forgiven us of so, so much through the death of his son Christ on the cross, yet we hold on to this unforgiving heart, and we have the audacity not to grant forgiveness over someone. And so the question then changes from, how can I forgive question changes from how can I forgive to how can I not? The concept also is being echoed by Paul again in Ephesians. Ephesians 4.32, a great verse to commit to memory. But be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And here's the thing. There could be some real wrongs that have been done to you or done to us. And it's not wrong to want justice or vindication in those matters, matters, but those feelings are kind of normal. And it's also important to understand that oftentimes forgiveness is a process, and it takes time to work through feelings and emotions. Like, you don't want your, your forgiveness or granting of forgiveness to be cheap or flippant. And, you know, you have to, we have to understand that there's emotions involved. And forgiveness doesn't always mean instant or long-term reconciliation. Uh, but what it does mean is that we have made the decision, we have made uh, this uh, decision in our hearts and minds not to hold this offense over the other person. Uh, we have made the decision to uh, put aside the actions Uh, or thoughts of revenge, or retaliation, or bitterness of heart. And uh, and it's important to understand that we're able to do this. We're able to put aside those feelings of revenge, retaliation, and this overwhelming bitterness of heart. We're able to do that because it's not ours to wield. Romans 12.9 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath 
of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And it can be very difficult to do because what happens if this person has, has never apologized or much less even acknowledged what they've done? Or maybe their, their idea of restitution is so paltry that it doesn't even measure up as far as forgiveness is concerned. And what happens, we, we hold on to this anger. We, we hold on to this bitterness of heart. And we hold it over their heads. And, and when we get to this point, we just replay this scenario over and over again in our heads. And, and we ask ourselves the question, like, why did this happen to me? How, how come this person could be so happy? Like, I saw him walking around the, you know, city the other day. He had this big, smiley, happy face. You just kind of want to smack it off, right? And, and then you're, you're just like, how could they be so happy when I'm so miserable? Or, or, or you could just say something along the lines of, um, you know, why, Lord, do you allow the wicked to prosper? And this holding on to this anger and bitterness in our life can often lead to a season of discouragement. And never avenge yourself, uh, yourselves. That's what God says. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Laying these feelings of, you know, vengeance down, it doesn't nullify what has taken place. It doesn't nullify what's been done to you. What it does is when we lay it down, we give it to the Almighty Judge, the Creator of the universe, and He is able to pick it back up again. God, uh, if we lay it down, God picks it back up. It's not about karma. It's not about what goes around comes around. It's about placing it in the hands of a sovereign, omniscient God who sees all, who, who hears all, and who deals with all according to his sovereign will. You lay it down, God picks it back up. You lay it down, God picks it back up. And with that comes freedom, freedom that maybe many in this room need to experience today when it comes to this topic of forgiveness. We need to trust, we need to trust that God is just. And this is where the passage turns, and this is where Paul's heart actually turns, and this is where maybe many of us in this room, this is where our hearts need to turn. It's this old adage, we don't say it enough to count your blessings. Oftentimes we are are just going along in life and we forget everything that God has blessed us with. So the second area we need to turn to when we are discouraged is to have a thankful heart, a thankful heart. When we're able to go through life and recognize all the things that God has blessed us with, when we're able to really take some time and think through everything that we have, what happens oftentimes is it takes our discouragement and turns it into joy. And thinking through all the times in the past that God has delivered us. We're in the, maybe in the most difficult of seasons, but we have to remember that God is faithful He is with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. We have to remember all of those times that God has delivered us in the past. And when we're able to do that, we could have hope. We could have encouragement that he will be there again. So oftentimes we are just find ourselves in the season and and we want to get revenge or we want to, we're in the season of discouragement and we need to take things and we need to turn it into joy. Perspective is everything. Thankful, a thankful heart, being uh, thankful in everything that God has done for us. It's, it's almost like it's depression or it's discouragement. Kryptonite, right? You guys know about kryptonite. Anybody? Okay, I'm just alone up here. Who here's favorite superhero is Superman? Anybody? 
Okay, a couple. Man, you guys are lame. So me, my favorite superhero, hands down, was Superman. You ask why? Well, it's, it's very, for a very specific reason that probably, I don't know, probably nobody else in here has, but uh, I'm adopted. I'm adopted from Korea, and I was adopted when I was 18 months old. And my mom, uh, and this is her breaking the news, right? I was five, and Superman was, you know, one of my favorite superheroes. So she found this pin, and the pin said, and she gave it to me when I was five, and she said, uh, it said on here that, that Superman, Superman was adopted too. And I'm like, sweet! You know, that got me so excited. So I'm Korean, Superman was Kryptonian. They, they, they both start with K's, you know, a li- little bit same there, but... Uh, but Superman was adopted uh, as well. And if you've been at Reengage, I joke about this a lot, uh, but um, I'm actually half Korean and half Irish. How's that for a combination, right? So I've got all kinds of jokes about that, uh, but, you know, I thought I was half Korean and I thought I was half Irish until I spit in a tube. You guys might know what that means. I sent my DNA to Ancestry.com because I needed to know. I just had to know, you know, what, what I'm uh, com- comprised of. And, well, guess what? Guess what? It turns out that I'm half Korean, but I'm not half Irish. I'm 34% Irish, and I'm 14% European Jewish. European Jewish. How's that for a combination? So I just want to remind you guys that I'm more Christ-like than all y'all, okay? <laughs> Completely. You know, I, I have been chosen. I'm part of the elect. I, there's no need for me to be grafted in, according to Romans 11. I am fully Gentile and fully Jew. So just remember that when I'm up here talking or giving you some type of wise counsel. So, but back to the passage. Paul is emphatically proclaiming in his heart and in his soul and in his mind that he has so much to be thankful for. He says in verse 14, thanks be to God. And this is where his heart starts to turn. This is where he comes out of the despondency, out of the darkness. Instead of wallowing in this boggy mire of discouragement, he's looking at the troubled sea, and he's not drowning in it anymore. He's saying, I'm going to take this discouragement, and I'm going to turn it into encouragement. And this is the last portion of the passage, a very, very powerful passage. It says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance of Life to life, who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. This, this word, triumphal procession, these words, fragrance, aroma, they're, they're speaking to something else. As we know, Paul, he was, he was Jewish, like myself. And, but he was, also, he was also a Roman citizen who had spent a great deal of time in, in Rome, and he was familiar with something else that was a somewhat regular occurrence in the city of Rome. It's called a Roman triumphal procession. And uh, what takes place in these, the parallels and analogies that ensue, 
Paul is directing us towards this, a Roman triumph. Because I did a little research on, uh, Rome, in Roman and Greek history and, and saw Wikipedia, saw that um, a Roman triumph is actually referring to a procession held for a Roman general, uh, the commander-in-chief. And he had to uh, meet a specific criteria in order to have one of these triumphs held for him. He had to uh, conquest a foreign soil. The, the soil that he conquested had to be pacified. He had to bring his, um, he had to bring his troops, a great amount of his troops, back. He, he also um, had to uh, bring back some of these captives. And some of, uh, he had to have a, a battle that over 5,000 individuals of his opposition had fallen in this battle. And it's essentially a once-in-a-life accomplishment for a Roman general. And there's details and pictures about this. There's hundreds of them throughout Rome and throughout Europe. And, and so we have a couple of pictures of that here because in commemoration of this event, they would build this what we call a triumphal arch. And so you can see this one. This is the Arch of Constantine right next to the Roman uh, Colosseum. Of, this is probably the most well-known one. And then the next slide, uh, this is the, the Arch of Titus and and this is, uh, you can see the sculptures on there. Uh, they're basically commemorate, commemorating uh, the general's conquest. And we have one more arch that I talked to Scott Harrop about, and he said we could do this at the new church building I'm really excited about. This one's called the Arch of Link. Okay, so the Arch of Link. And so I don't know, I don't know how they got that color in there. That's really cool, though. Uh, but in addition, in addition, this Roman general would be given a great commendation on this day. It wasn't just to this parade form, but there's lots of stipulations that would take place within that parade. First of all, he would be um, given a laurel leaven wreath, and that's the wreath of leaves around his head, only to be worn by Caesars at that time, and that was a great commendation. Also, his face, it would have been painted red as, as a sign uh, of deity. He would be given uh, what, is, what is called the toga picta, right? Toga party? He would be given this beautiful purple robe that was gold embroidered and it would be called the toga picta and he would wear that and he would be in a chariot um, you know driven by four horses and they would be chanting his name in the city and this just this great glorification of this specific person and most importantly he would take the position of vire uh, triumphalis and this is a word that means that for this day he would be recognized as deity even greater than Caesar himself. And this entire city just chanting his name and bringing glory to his name. And, and also this fragrance. What about this fragrance that he's speaking of? And he, he says, the fragrance of knowledge of him everywhere, for we, are, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Well, there was this fragrance that would be within the city that the, the priests would go first and foremost, and they would burn incense. And the, the, the fumes and the aroma of this would just uh, wave throughout the, the entire city and, and just kind of actually be an aroma of victory. And also the women would take um, a great amount of flowers and just throw them on the path. And, and the soldiers and their hooves and the, the horses' hooves would just uh, stamp that down and then release this beautiful fragrance. There was there is an aroma of victory that took place. And as Christians, we have to ask ourselves, what type of aroma are we? You know, last week, Keith talked about the word sincere, meaning that are we sincere in our words and our actions? You know, Paul calls us to walk in a manner worthy 
of the, what we have been called to in Christ Jesus. And so asking ourselves the question, does our character represent this? And um, are we a Christian or are we one that follows Christ? Because if you follow Christ, it's not just a, a flippant decision. It's not something that we, we live our life and, and we slap a little bit of Jesus on it and call it good, right? It's not something that we spray a little bit of Febreze on, right? So this is third service, so I just want to let you guys know that I'm smelling pretty good right now. And so it's not something that we, you know, this is the ultimate cover-up, is it not? You know, this is what, you know, this is how we get everyone uh, at, the, at the hub for Sunday morning services because they have anchor on Sunday nights. We just spray this down, and it's smelling good for everybody. But Febreze, it's kind of the ultimate cover-up, right? You know, we could, be, we could live our life, and, you know, maybe our, our marriage or our family life, uh, uh, we're just kind of maybe just a jerk, just a jerk at home. Our home life, our, our, uh, our marriage, how we treat our spouse. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe we just rule our kids with an iron scepter. But, you know, we just say, hey, I'm going to just spritz a little Febreze on it, and I'm good, right? Or, or maybe it's a situation where you're just at a, a place that you know you shouldn't be at. You know, maybe you're just kind of headlong in some uh, serious sin issues, or, or you're just not really moving into community, or not really moving into transparency. Maybe the sin is for everyone to see, or maybe the sin is kind of in a dark, hidden place. But regardless, you're just saying, hey, it's not a big deal. I'm just going to spray a little bit of Febreze on it and call it good. But that's not what God has called us to. He's actually called us to so much more. Don't sell yourself short for everything that God requires of us in this life of following after him. Matthew 5.14 says, You are the light of the world. A city set upon a hill cannot be hidden. And so this thing of calling uh, what we do, following after Jesus, it's not a thing. It's not something that we just, you know, spend a little bit of time doing once in a while and, you know, just carry this name and banner of Christ. It's not a thing. It's everything. God doesn't just want a small part of you. He wants your whole life. He wants to have him be in the driver's seat. He wants everything to be going through Christ, just as we see Paul doing. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And seeing these Roman triumphs, there's another fragrance that existed. There's a fragrance of defeat. There's a fragrance of death. Because oftentimes, when these Roman generals would conquest an area, they would bring back these high-ranking officials, and they would parade them as a sign of uh, conquering this, this area, they would parade them in this triumphal procession. And these prisoners would be seething and cursing their conquerors' names. And, and ultimately, the end game for them was that they would be executed at the end of this parade. So within these triumphal processions, there was definitely a sweet smell and aroma of victory that wafted through the city. But there was also an aroma of death. Life to life death to death. And here's the other thing. 2,000 years ago, there was another triumphal procession that took place. But it wasn't one that anyone would consider to be triumphant. Because when our Savior came and died on the cross, he didn't wear a laurel leaven wreath. 
He had a crown of thorns pounded into his skull. He didn't have his face painted as a sign of deity. His face was, was bathed in his own blood. He didn't carry himself in a chariot drawn by four horses. The crowds, they weren't chanting his name. He carried his cross to the point of exhaustion, only to have people curse at him and spit at him. He didn't take this position of vire triumphalis for the day, where he would be recognized greater than Caesar or as deity himself. He came down off his throne and humbled himself and was obedient to death, even death on a grisly cross. And he did that for you, and he did that for me, so we could have life and have it abundantly. So today, we're just going to conclude with a very simple question. What part of this triumphal procession are you on? Because if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have victory in his name. But if you don't, you're part of this procession that is death to death. You're being held captive to impending doom. Which side of this triumphal procession are you on? Are you a fragrance of life to life? Are you a fragrance of death to death? Right now, as a church, we're taking in all of these prayer requests over the last couple of weeks, realizing and knowing that God can. These are God can prayer requests. And so this week, we would like you to take some time and say, God can triumph. God can triumph over your discouragement through forgiveness. God can triumph over your discouragement through thankfulness. God can triumph over your discouragement because he has triumphed over sin and death for all of eternity. He is righteous. He is seated high upon his throne, and he can do this We know he can. Know this, wherever you're at today, maybe you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you're in the deepest, darkest period of discouragement that you've ever been in. God wants to liberate you today. God wants to show you that he can do all that you can ask or imagine to his glory. He wants you to be part of his story. And that's amazing. And see, Christ humbled himself and he died on a cross But this in no way took away from his glory. We find that this word triumph is used again in Colossians 2. It says, We are made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them, triumphing over them in him. So again, where are you at on this triumphal procession? Are you part of this victory march? Are you part of the victory march that gives life to life? Are you part of the victory or the defeat march that gives death to death? Yes, there will be sorrow 
Yes, there will be seasons of discouragement. Yes, there will be suffering. That's part of what it means to walk with Christ. But know that God is with you every step. Bend. Don't break. He is there. Our Savior. Our General. Our resurrected King is seated high upon His throne. It says in Ephesians 1, He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He is above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come. And that one to come is all of eternity. So rest assured, we have a God that can triumph over all. So right now, please stand to your feet. As we just spend a lot of time, a little bit of time, proclaiming in song that he is victorious. Know this verse, but thanks be to God in Christ, who in Christ always, always gives us the triumphal procession. His name is above every name that is named. His name is victory.